Hope you are well, church family. Uh, today we find ourselves back in the Gospel of John. I did a little bit of research and um, I was reminded just this morning that we kicked off this series in the Gospel of John on January 15th of last year. And so I'm not a, a numbers guy, but I think that's about a year. Um, and we've taken a couple detours along the way. You know, we've, we've stopped for a week here or there and we've uh, started again, but uh, we have we have enjoyed kind of walking through this gospel over the past year. That's not uncommon at Christ Point. Oftentimes, we will go through books of the Bible. There are exceptions to that. We're not against topical series. Uh, we've we've done them before, but uh, primarily uh, we will spend our time uh, slowly but surely walking through the pages of Scripture. Uh, we do this for a couple of reasons. I tell people all the time, I'm not smart enough to think of my own material. And so it just makes sense that we would kind of just do the next passage. Uh, that's the way it was written. So I figured, well, that's, that's what we'll go with. Uh, but also, uh, there, there is great joy in seeing God's story unfold uh, before our eyes. Now, if you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but James, I, you know, I need something practical. Or, but James, I, you know, I want something relevant. Or James, you know, I need something uh, helpful. Uh, don't worry. Uh, it'll come. You know, God's word is living and active. He uses it to form and shape us. Uh, and change us uh, all the time. Uh, if you're bummed because you're new to Christ Point and you missed last year, uh, you can you know you can listen online uh, and catch up, uh, or you can just read near the end of John's Gospel when he tells us in two verses what the whole book is about. And so that you know it's kind of the Cliff Notes version before they were Cliff Notes. And so John wrote in John 20, verse 30 through 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, uh, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so that's what we want. Uh, God calls us to believe uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, believing in Jesus, we would have a life in his name. That message, by the way, is not unique to John's gospel. Um, that message is the message of all of Scripture. And I think about the conversation that Jesus had with a couple of guys on the Damascus Road. They were blind uh, to who Jesus was. They were grieving the loss of Christ, the Messiah, and their eyes had been crucified, uh, and they were lamenting his departure. And they strike up a conversation with Jesus, but you know they don't see Jesus for who he is. And then finally, when their eyes are open, Jesus uh, said to the men in Luke chapter 24, verse 26, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus opens up, in essence, the Old Testament scriptures to these men and says, hey, this is what the story is all about. Everything that you read in the Old Testament is about me. Uh, we see it in John's gospel. We see it in conversations that Jesus has in the gospels. Uh, we see it in Paul's writings in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 16 through 18. It uh, or verse 14 through uh, 15, it reads, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation uh, through faith in uh, Jesus Christ. So uh, Paul is uh, writing to the church and going, Hey, I want you to be wise to salvation. 
Um, that, that's what the sacred writings do. And Paul is referring uh, to the Old Testament scriptures. And so the Old Testament uh, makes us wise until salvation. Uh, Jesus, uh, as he explains the gospel to individuals, uh, says that all of the Bible is about him and pointing people to him. And then here in John's gospel, he writes uh, to encourage us to have faith, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, uh, we would have life in his name. So this story, the story of Scripture, is about Jesus. It's one of the reasons that at Christ Point we say all the time we want to point the people to Jesus, and that's what we want uh, to do this morning. Uh, Russ read our passage this morning from John chapter 12. If you don't have uh, your Bibles, you can uh, open up there. Or if you haven't opened up your Bibles, you can open up there. Uh, you can follow along uh, as well on uh, the uh, the Version app, or you can pull out your phone. You're not allowed to uh, play uh, cards um, while I'm preaching. It's okay to play cards like after this morning, but not while I'm preaching. So um, three things that I want to do this morning. I want to define uh, what successful ministry looks like. I want to define a ministry success. I want us to consider why Jesus was rejected and I want to challenge us uh, to respond to the, author, to the offer of life found in Christ. Just so you know, it's okay if you guys play cards. That was a joke. I don't feel like it landed well, but I'm just, like I know, like my grandparents, there was a thing, I don't know if it was a generational thing, they were against playing cards. It's okay. I just, never mind. John chapter 12, verse 36 uh, reads, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Although he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So this is the end of the earthly ministry of Jesus. And this is, this is kind of the, the last chapter. Uh, Jesus had performed miracles. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He raised the dead. Jesus taught truth to the crowds. He ruffled the feathers of the religious elite. He spoke words of hope to outsiders he offered a place at the table for all who would come. His life and ministry is nearing an end. And, and this passage, in, in a way, serves as um, kind of final thoughts to the ministry of Christ. In, in verse 37, I just was struck by, as I read it, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not uh, believe in him. I want to stop there uh, just for a minute and I want to ask a question that is going to sound a bit crazy, but I want to ask it anyway. And the question is this, was Jesus's ministry successful? Was his ministry successful? Did he experience ministry success? Now, I know that's a crazy question to ask. And before you think I've lost my marbles, I want you to know that Jesus was perfect in all that he did. Everything that he set out to accomplish, he accomplished. He did not fail God the Father's calling upon his life. But I was struck when I read this passage. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. I mean, think about it for a second. If you're in sales, for instance, and your responsibility is to close the deal, you know, to get deals done. And at the end of the year, the boss calls you into the office and says, hey, we're going to take a look at your numbers. Um, did, you, did you get any deals? Did you close any deals? And if you were to reply to him, 
no, but I got lots of no's. Like, that's not my world, but I'm thinking that would not go over well. From what I understand, you need more than leads. You need more than conversations that are, uh, are potential deals. You actually need to close the deal. And so when I read this, I thought to myself, was Jesus' ministry, according to how oftentimes we define success, uh, was it successful? Because Jesus performed many miracles and many people did not believe in him. Many of his own people did not believe in him. So was Jesus' ministry successful? I think we are wise to be careful how we define ministry success or even success in the Christian life. Oftentimes, in the church world, success is defined by the three B's, buildings, bucks, and butts. Uh, we, we define success uh, by structure, kind of where we meet. We define success by how many resources come in. Uh, we define success by how many people attend. I want to preface what I'm about to say because um, we are praying toward all of those this year as a church family. We, we want to build a permanent facility. We see a permanent facility as a tool uh, to be used by God to advance the gospel. We want a permanent place to meet, one that more than likely does not have a mallard duck hanging over my shoulder. It's been a prayer for quite some time. We are praying that God would stir in the hearts of this church family a crazy generosity and give exceedingly more than we could ever ask or imagine. We see that as a way to advance ministry. Like We're going to get excited about that. We are praying desperately uh, that God would continue to send people who would call Christ Point home. Last week, we had over 40 kids and CP kids. We think that that was a record for us. Last week, during staff meeting, we started dreaming about places where we could put them, where parents wouldn't start asking questions. Because, listen, we, we just don't have a ton of space. Like we're limited in our space, particularly with our kids. And we want more kids to come. We want more parents to come. We want more single people to come and married people to come. Like we want people to come. There are tens of thousands of people like right outside the barn doors. They're not connected to a local church family. Many of them do not have a relationship with God. And so we are praying that God would send more and more people at Christ Point. We want to try to figure out those problems. People are souls. People matter to us. But listen, a permanent facility and more money in the bank and more people on Sunday morning is not the definition of ministry success. 
It is, it is not. Those can be good things. Those can be things that we can celebrate as a church. But, but they are not things that drive us. If that was the definition of success, then Jesus' ministry, it could be argued, was not as successful as we might think it would be or could be or should be. Because many people heard his teachings and left. They essentially looked at his life and said, thanks, but no thanks. Like, we do not want what you are offering. Jesus offered another definition of success. And I, just to be honest with you, I don't even love that word. But for, for Jesus, success in ministry was faithfulness uh, to his calling and obedience to his Father in finishing the work that he was given to do. Success in ministry for Jesus was faithfulness to the calling of his father, obedience uh, to his heavenly dad, and finishing the work that he was given to do. And despite his faithfulness, many people did not uh, believe. So why did people not believe in Jesus? Why did people not believe? Why did people hear his teachings, experience his miracles, notice lives change, and still uh, turn away from Christ? Well, we're told here, In John chapter 12, uh, verse 37, there's a couple reasons that are given. It says in verse 37 of John chapter 12, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So uh, John quotes the prophet Isaiah on two different occasions. In John chapter 12, verse 38, John quotes Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. And then in John chapter 12, verse 40, he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. Isaiah chapter 53, if you are familiar with Isaiah 53, is a description of the suffering servant. It's a passage about Jesus. The two verses in Isaiah that follow the verse that John read, Isaiah 53, 2 and 3, read, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. This is Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Isaiah prophesied that the suffering servant would be rejected. Uh, Israel would not believe in the Savior of the world, which is why John asked in John 12, 38, who has believed? Why did they not believe? Because Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him. As a man, Jesus wasn't Messiah material. His appearance was unimpressive. Jesus was not a young Pierce Brosnan or Sean Connery. He was not homecoming king at the local synagogue. His appearance did not turn heads. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, just to the naked eye, he was not savior material. Superheroes are not supposed to be super meh. 
But apparently, just based on appearances, Jesus was. Like you would look at him and it sounds like he was the guy that could walk into a room and disappear. He was not a head turner. People didn't look at him and go, hey, who's that over there? Appearance-wise, he was unimpressive. He did not look the part. And so when people experienced his ministry, they probably shrugged their shoulders and thought, he's not Messiah material. So first, in John 50, uh, or first in Isaiah 53, there is quoted a reference to people rejecting Jesus because of his unimpressive appearance. And then in John 12, verse 40, John quotes Isaiah 6.10, which describes what was going to happen when Isaiah preached the vision that he saw of God's glory. In Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, it talks about how Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Above him, it says, were the seraphim. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of glory. God told Isaiah that when he preached the greatness of the glory of God, that people would not believe. In fact, they would be blinded and their hearts would be hardened. Why? Because they did not want to hear of such glory and power and holiness. Again, they were unimpressed by the glory of Jesus. People were unimpressed by the glory of Jesus and therefore they rejected Jesus. Jesus is glorious But the people seemed to respond not in praise and adoration. Instead, they responded in apathy or disdain, and they walked away. They did not worship the God of the universe, even though he stood before them. So on one hand, we read of those who rejected Jesus, rejecting him because he was physically unimpressive. There wasn't anything that people noticed in him that would... Uh, that would draw them to Christ. And on the other hand, people rejected him because they were unimpressed by the glory of God. They were unimpressed by the glory that was seen uh, in Jesus. Uh, but, but notice what John is doing in this passage in John chapter 12, because there's, there's more to it than just that. I mean, that is significant. But, but John makes this other bold claim that should cause us um, to pause uh, like dead in our tracks. It says in verse uh, 39, therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So these people could not believe because God has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. The he in this text is is God. God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. I don't know about you, but there are times when I read a passage in Scripture and I go, wait a second. Does that mean what I, what I think it means? Like, is, it, is the biblical author saying what I think the biblical author is saying? And there are certain passages in, in Scripture that, that call us to a lifetime, a lifetime of reflection. 
Like, what do you, I mean, what do you, what do, you do with that verse? What do, you, what do you do when you start reading things in Scripture that you don't understand or that don't make sense to you? What do you do when you read John chapter 6, verse 3, and it says, All that the Father gives me will come, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. What do you do when you come to John 15, 16, and Jesus reminds his followers, You did not choose me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. What do you do with the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 when Jesus prays in verse 9? I am praying for them, church, praying for believers. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I mean, do you... Like, do you ever stop and go, what does that mean? Do you ever come to a passage in Scripture and, and, and kind of scratch your head a little bit and go, man, I, I need help with that. I, I don't understand. And then you spend a lifetime like, trying to figure it out. Here's what I think the text is, is teaching us. Sometimes when I come to a passage where I'm going, I don't know if I understand everything here. I just go, well, what, what do I understand? And something that the text here and in John's gospel and other places in Scripture seem to be teaching is that God is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign over salvation. Like it is his deal. It's his deal. And I remember when I was a teenager... I was in high school and I started uh, reading my Bible. We had a, like 15 minutes of free time where we could read anything we wanted in our English class. And, you know, a lot of times I wanted to bring in like Car and Driver or, you know, some Sports Illustrated or something. But uh, you know, God was working in my heart and I started bringing my Bible to school. I went to a, to a public high school. Uh, it, it was not always well received. But I started reading through God's word and I, and I started coming across passages that I didn't understand. And I would, I would underline them and I, and I would start reading up on them. And I would ask my grandfather, I was in ministry, he was a uh, principal at a Christian school and had been a pastor, just a godly man. And I started drilling him with questions. And I'm, I would say, like, I don't understand what this means. Would you help me understand what that means or what this means? And that was, that was uh, 30 years ago. That was 30 years ago. And uh, 30 years later, uh, I'm, I'm happy uh, to let you know <laughs> that I'm still asking questions. I'm still asking questions. But the text seems clear that God is sovereign over salvation. Scripture is pretty clear that spiritually dead people don't make themselves alive. Scripture is clear that God has tremendous closing speed. When the hound of heaven comes for you, uh, good luck outrunning God. I know that may bristle against sort of our, our Western individualistic, hey, if it's meant to be, it's up to me, you know, type mentality. I don't see, I don't see that in the text. 
I see a sovereign God who lovingly calls people to uh, himself. God is sovereign over salvation, uh, and, and we are called to believe Jesus, and we are totally responsible for not believing Jesus. God is sovereign over salvation, and we are called to believe Jesus and totally responsible for not believing Jesus. People rejected Jesus because they were unimpressed by Jesus. They didn't see him as glorious. They didn't want anything to do with him. And, and I admittedly don't understand how that fully works, how, how God is completely sovereign over salvation, and he invites people to follow him all of the time. He invites us to invite people to follow Jesus, to trust Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to love Jesus, all throughout the pages of Scripture. And there are times when I wrestle with that and I try to think through it and create categories that are helpful and it makes my brain hurt. And oftentimes when that happens, I open up the word to Romans chapter 11, verse 33 through 36 and read, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Something tells me uh, that we will spend all of eternity growing to know a God whose works and ways we don't always fully understand. I'm learning to be okay with the fact that God is God and I am not. Um, God is God and we are not. And so there are times when we will think about the way that God moves and operates toward his people and we will ask questions, we will wrestle, and hopefully, hopefully we will respond in praise. God is sovereign over salvation. Humanity is called to believe and follow Jesus. John continues in verse 42, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Many even of the authorities believed in him. If you've been tracking with us through John's gospel, you know that there are times in the gospel where it speaks of a people who believe in Jesus, but their faith is inauthentic. They believe in the miracles of Jesus. Uh, they, they believe in something that they believe Jesus can give to them or get for them, uh, but they don't believe in Jesus as their Savior. It's possible possible. We don't know for sure, but it's possible when it's speaking of the authorities here, believing in Jesus, that this is an inauthentic faith. We don't know that for sure. At the, at the very least, uh, there is something lacking. There's something lacking in this faith because it says of these people that uh, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They loved man's praise more than praising God. 
the court of public opinion was more important to them than confessing Christ. The approval of the crowd meant more to them than the approval of God, which is absolutely crazy when you think about it. I don't know, I don't know when that desire uh, begins in us, but it seems like it happens at a young age. I mean, do you ever remember when you were little growing up and you're, you're kind of surveying friends in school and friend groups and you're trying to identify like, like who's in and who's out? You're trying to figure out like who you want to run with, like what group you want to be a part of. And you're, and you're willing to go to, to great lengths just to feel like you fit in. It's as if you care more about the opinion of man than, than you do the opinion of God. I remember when I was in sixth grade, uh, my brother and I were at the park and we came across three or four kids. They were riding their bikes. We were actually relatively new to the, to the neighborhood. I might have actually been in fifth grade. And I was watching these kids, and I didn't know them. I, I literally had just met them. I didn't even know if we had their names yet. And I just looked at them, and I'm like, they look kind of cool. I don't know why they looked cool, but they looked cool. They were spitting between their two front teeth. I didn't know if they played baseball. Like, I didn't know how they figured out how to do that. But I thought to myself, man, that's pretty cool. So we're just sitting there, and we're talking, and, you know, like, talking and I see him spitting. I'm like, I'm going to try that. I'm going to try to spit like them. And so I go, and it just dribbled down my chin. And I just slowly, it was like the spit of shame. I, like I, I wanted so desperate. I, I didn't even know these kids. And I'm like, I just, I just want to be in. Like I want them to look at me and feel the same way about me that I feel about them right now. And I just look like a fool. You know what's crazy? is oftentimes we never grow out of that. Like we, we spend our, our lives caring way more about what people think about us than what God says about us, which is nuts when you think about it. I mean, what would it look like uh, to, to live a life where the court of public opinion does not drive us where, where fear of man does not grip us, where we're willing to move and act in, in bold and courageous ways because we care more about the glory of God and pleasing our Father in heaven way more than we care about the opinion of fellow man. Uh, something tells me the impact of that would be significant uh, for the kingdom. And so I want to invite you to that this morning. I want to invite us to that this morning. Uh, Jesus invites us uh, to come to him and trust in him. He says in John chapter 12 that he is the light of the world. And to come and experience light means we never walk in darkness again. Jesus is uh, the bread of life. He is the one who can satisfy your deepest longings and desires. And so I invite you to come to him. Jesus was God's son who came to this earth to live a perfect life 
and to die a sinner's death. He was buried and he rose again, defeating the grave, defeating death and offering life to you and to me. My hope and prayer this morning is that we would come to him and that we would experience life. Would you pray with me? Father God, we long to experience life today. Lord, you invite us to come to you. I pray this morning that if there are men and women, students here or watching online at home who are far from you and do not have a relationship with you, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your word. God, we thank you so much for your good work. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for uh, the the truth that you bring spiritually dead people to life. Uh, You are a life giver, and we praise you and we give you thanks today. Uh, God, we love you. We thank you so much that you loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Uh, One of the great joys we have as a church is to participate in communion. Um, Communion, or what is commonly referred to as the Lord's Supper, is an opportunity we have to remember the sacrifice of Jesus, his broken body, and the blood that was poured out uh, for you and me. Communion is both a time of reflection and also a time of celebration. Okay, so we reflect on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we also celebrate and declare that we know and believe he's coming again. So communion is an opportunity for the people of God to remember the work of God. If you're here this morning and you follow Jesus, which means that you've trusted in Jesus, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, for the forgiveness of sins, then we invite you to participate. Uh, If you haven't trusted Jesus as Savior, if you're still exploring it or kind of kicking the tires, then we ask you to pass. So take a moment to take out the cup and juice in this contract, uh, yeah, this combination thing. Um, <laughs> pray with me as we give thanks uh, for the bread. Uh, Jesus, um, you are good. Thank you for this bread that represents your body that was broken for us. As brutal as it was, if it didn't happen, we have no hope. So thank you. In your name, amen. Scripture says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray for the cup. Jesus, again, thank you. If your blood wasn't shed, then there's no forgiveness of sin. Thank you for this juice that represents your blood that cleanses us past, present, and future. Just thank you. Amen. Scripture says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Heavenly Father, um, thank you for the sacrifice of your son. Thank you for your perfect plan of salvation that started when the world began. Uh, Nothing that's happened since that time has surprised you. So we thank you. We thank you for your life or sending your son for his life and his death and his resurrection. Thank you for salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.